I want to talk to you today about how, how he heals the broken heart, how God heals the broken heart. This past Sunday night, uh, I found out Monday morning my, my grandfather passed away. I called him Pawpaw. Pawpaw was 100 years old. This Tuesday, he would have been 101. And he was bigger than life to me. He had done all kinds of things, neat things in his life. And, um, and I admired him greatly. Uh, he, he did not have faith, but he was gracious and kind to me. Uh, and of all the things that he did that most impressed me, uh, he cared for me. He loved me. When my mom was a single mom, newly divorced, and I was a little boy, uh, he helped her establish a, a little home, and he uh, built or established a home right next door in the lot next to us. And there was a ditch between the houses, and he built a little bridge, and I could cross over and go see my grandfather anytime I wanted, and I did. And I still remember what it's like to crawl up in his lap. And he tinkered with engines and motors all his life and used to race boats and built and rebuilt car engines. And it was just something he did on the side. And I would go in his shop and he never got onto me. I know I was a pain. And I know I was into the stuff I shouldn't be in. But he never scolded me, never got onto me, and, and uh, was always gracious to me. He influenced me as a man influences a boy more than anyone else at that critical moment in my life. And we were close. And so Monday morning, I, I'm getting ready for the day, and I've got a plan for the week, and I kind of know what needs to be happening. And, and I get a phone call, and, and I receive the news that Papa had died Sunday night. And my heart stopped. I mean, I can take you to the spot in the house, and my heart stopped. I, it was hard to breathe. And, um, and in my mind, I'm listening on the phone to what I'm being told, but in my mind, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. And I go and sit down in the bedroom and Gail walks in and she's talking to me about something and she realizes there's something wrong and, and I shared with her that Papa had died and, and, um, and when she hugged me I lost it, just lost it and grief had come into my life again in the last five years I've lost six people who were particularly close to me and a college roommate my birth father my spiritual father my stepsister my grandmother and now my grandfather and the tears they come and the grief comes in waves often unexpected at times when you least are thinking about someone who's passed, it comes again. 
and um, like a storm in the soul. Today is Palm Sunday, and I want you to see something that happened on Palm Sunday that sets us up for what I believe the Lord wants me to talk about today. Palm Sunday, you know, is that time of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and Jesus and all of the disciples are traveling with him, and they are, he is riding on a donkey, they put their coats on the back of it, he's sitting on that, they're, they're using palm leaves, they're shouting, they're singing praises, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King who comes in the name of the Lord. In the midst of all of that excitement, in chapter 19 of Luke, there's just one verse there I want you to see, Luke 19, verse 41. In the midst of all of that excitement, as they draw near to Jerusalem, the Bible says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, many times when you hear messages about Palm Sunday, you don't hear that story. And it occurred at the same time. Jesus is weeping while everybody else is excited and, and joyful. He is weeping. In fact, the word used there is not the word for silent, quiet weeping. It is the word for wailing. He is wailing. People are joyful and happy. And he was wailing over the lostness of the people of Jerusalem and the consequences of that lostness that were going to come ultimately in 70 A.D. And, and he sees this and he knows this and he is wailing. And it doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change a thing. Sometimes we think, well, it's a waste of time to weep or it's a waste of time to cry or to mourn because it doesn't make any difference. You can't bring that thing back. You can't fix that thing that caused your hurt. You, you can't fix it. doesn't change a thing. Jesus is wailing over the city. Nothing is changing as he weeps. Jesus wept at other times. The, you saw in the opening how Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, and, and he goes and he raises him. The story, though, is that he was already dead, and the sisters come to him, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus sees them and hears their weeping, and it says he groans in their spirit in John. He groans in his spirit, and then the shortest verse in the Bible in John 11 says, Jesus wept. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But he grieves and he mourns. There's great evidence that suggests that Jesus wept mightily in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. This is what Isaiah knew about Jesus. This is what Isaiah understood about the Messiah, is that he would be a man of sorrows. It says in Isaiah 53, 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with with grief. You know, that word acquainted sounds like, well, I don't know them very well, they're just an acquaintance. The word in the language that's used there describes an intimate knowledge of grief. He, he is intimately aware of that grief. Something he knows based on his personal experience. And he is a man of sorrows acquainted for, with grief. In the very next verse it says, he has borne our griefs. 
Not only does he experience grief, but he has carried our griefs. I want to define grief this morning in this way. That grief is a normal human response to any great loss or hurt. A normal human response to any loss or to any hurt. And I want to talk to you today about two things. I want to talk to you first about the things I've learned about God through grief. And then secondly, I want to talk about the things I've learned to do in relationship to grief. First, what God has taught me about himself during times of grief. Number one, lesson number one is this. He draws near to me. The first thing I've learned is that when I grieve, he draws near to me. In Psalm 34, verse 18, the psalmist says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. You know what a contrite spirit is? It means crushed in the little pieces. <laughs> he saves those who are crushed in the little pieces. You know, when I was um, Monday, I was, I was uh, worthless Monday. <laughs> and so I sent a note to the staff Tuesday. I had so many things I felt like I needed to do. And so I took Tuesday off, and, and, um, and, and I, you know, I have things to do, and, and I know I need to preach. It's coming, Palm Sunday's coming, and I'm not doing a series because the Lord said don't do a series, and so I'm not doing a series. And, um, and so I start down one path, and I see something, and it speaks to me, and I'm, I'm kind of working that direction, and it's a great Bible study, but at the end of it, I don't sense the Lord's a blessing on that, and so I, I take those notes and I set them aside. I did it a second time. I'm working on it. I think, well, you know, and I, I'm excited about this truth and this Bible study, and the Lord's showing me some things, and I, I make a bunch of notes, and I look at it, and I go, the Lord's not in that, and that happened two or three times. Finally, Wednesday morning, I was praying about it, and I said, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? You know, my ability to concentrate uh, everything just sort of broken and I have this broken heart and the Lord very clearly said Don um, this is not a normal week he says I want you to share some of the things I've taught you about grief and so that's a daunting task at Wind Baptist Church to me because I look out over this group and some of you you have had experienced incredible losses, and you have much you could say, much you have been through. The Bible says that he is near, he comes near to those who are brokenhearted. What does it mean for God to come near? You know, in ancient pagan times, particularly in northern Europe and among Celtic people of Ireland and Scotland, when they believed that there were certain places where you could go, on top of a mountain or something, there was some place you could go. And, and it was a place where they believed that the barrier that separates the seen from the unseen, the visible from the invisible, that the barrier grew very thin. In fact, they called them thin places. And they would put a rock up there, some kind of stone, stone hinge, you know, that kind of stuff. They would set something up because... They felt if you go to that place, you could get close 
to God. And when those people became Christians, they, they thought in terms of thin places. You see, God is everywhere. There's no place where you and I can go where God is not. So what does it mean when it says that God draws near? It means that there are certain things that you and I can do, that when we do them, he responds to those things, and he comes near. We sense his presence. It becomes a thin atmosphere, a thin place around us. Worship is like that. In Psalm 22, it says that God inhabits or is enthroned in the in the praises of his people. And that when you and I genuinely from the heart, we praise him and we lift him up and we exalt him, that we create that environment that he comes and is enthroned in the praises of his people. Fasting does that. Grief is one of those things. It says here in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And grief is is one of those times where where he comes close and he is close to us and he is most available to us. He's not distant. He's not absent. He hasn't abandoned you. You ever been working out in the yard, maybe with another friend or family member, you're in the house, you're working on something, and uh, you need that other person and you think they're at the other end of the house or you think they're at the other end of the yard and, um, and so you're working along, you turn around and say, hey, so-and-so, and they're right there. You know what I'm talking about? They're not way over there, they're right behind you, or they're right beside you. When you and I are grieving and we turn to the Lord, and we say, oh God, he is right there. He is right there. Have you turned to him? If you are grieving because of some great hurt or some great loss, The first thing that I know about God is that he comes near to those who are brokenhearted. There's a second thing I learned about God. Lesson number two, he comes to heal my broken heart. He comes to heal my broken heart. He just doesn't draw near. He comes to do something with me. You know, grief is like, to your soul, grief is like a disease. It's like an illness. It's like when something is broken in your body. In uh, Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So you're talking to his soul. Who forgives, talking about God, the Lord, forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Did you know that there were diseases of the soul? Injuries to the soul. Diseases, things that happen to the soul. And, and grief is one of those things that creates a broken heart, or it's, it's expression of a broken heart. And the, the psalmist later says in Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I can't do that for myself. Well, I may patch it together. I may try to push it aside and forget it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I can't heal the broken heart. He heals the broken heart. This was embedded in the ministry of Jesus. You know, in Isaiah 61, it talks about the mission of the Messiah. In Jesus' first sermon that he preached, he says in Luke 4, 18, quoting this, he says, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me. This is part of the mission of Christ, is to heal the broken heart. And so if you're here this morning and you are brokenhearted and you are wounded, 
he comes to heal the broken heart. This is the mission of Jesus. And you know, when I'm wounded or I'm hurt or grieving, it messes up the soul. It's like putting garbage into your gas tank. And I put this wrong thing into my gas and it gets into my motor and it gums it up and it breaks it and it damages it. If I just go on like that, I'm never going to get much done because it just kind of gums it up. I need something to change. And you know, one of the things that happens when you and I sin, for example, a, a great sin and we don't confess it and we're not walking with the Lord, is it does the same thing to our soul. It's a disease of the soul. And it gums us up. And you know, one of the great interesting things I, I see David doing in Psalm 51.10 is that he, he has sinned with Bathsheba. He, is, he has been indirectly involved in causing a murder of her husband. And she's pregnant with his child. And I mean, it's just terrible what he's done. And he has not talked to the Lord about it. He has been running from God about it. But when he finally pours out his heart, when he finally confesses the sin, he says in... in um, in Psalm 51.10, he says, Create in me a clean heart. And that word create is the same word for create that is used in Genesis when it says that God created the heavens and the earth. It means to make something out of nothing. What is David saying? He says, My heart is so messed up, it is so damaged, it is so infected, it is so broken. Oh God, give me a brand new heart. And so when he comes to heal the brokenhearted, you need to know you're dealing with someone who can heal the brokenhearted. And so I've learned that God draws near. I've learned that God heals the broken heart. There's a third thing I've learned about the Lord. Lesson number three is that he deepens my ability to care for others. He deepens my ability to care for others. God uses grief to change us. There's an old book by a man named Paul Bilheimer called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. You can almost tell what the book is about just by the title, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And in it, he argues and suggests that, that when you and I experience suffering and grief, that God changes us. The goal, the thing that needs to happen when you are grieving is not just so you can get healed up, so you can go on with your life. God wants to do so much more with your hurt and your grief than just so that you can go on with your life. He wants to use it to make you more like Jesus more loving, more joyful, more at peace, more patient, more goodness, more kindness. All of these qualities of Jesus, he wants to do that. You know, in the Bible, it says that we are called to care. In Romans 12, 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so we know with our heads that we should be compassionate. We should feel empathy when people are hurting, weeping with those who weep. But how do I become a caring person? How do I learn how to do that? How do I become that? 
Well, I want you to notice in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, what, um, what Paul says about this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all what? Comfort. That's who he is. It's his nature. It's part of who he is to comfort us. Who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that our trouble, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so when I'm grieving, God wants to come near. He wants to heal my heart. He wants to comfort me, not just so I can go on with my life, so that I can become someone who can give to someone else that same kind of godly care and compassion that he gives to you. It changes you. You don't see other people's pain the same way anymore. You begin to enter into their pain. You, it's easy to empathize with them. You, you recognize it. You don't have to go up and say, too, I know what you're going through. You don't need to say that. But you do understand there's something in your heart that, that pulls and you feel it. And you're changed. And so God wants to accomplish far more in you through your sense of loss and hurt than, than sometimes we're aware of. So he comes near, he heals the broken heart, he changes me through grief. Second thing I want to talk to you about this morning are some of the things that I've learned to do when I grieve. And you know, uh, there was, there's so many things. I... Um, if you were to talk to a, a biblical counselor or somebody that understands what the Bible says about grief, it is overwhelming how much is in the Scripture about this. And, and then when you step out of Scripture just to people who study the phenomenon of grief, and there are whole books and libraries of information, I'm just sharing with you the things I believe the Lord wants me to say today. There's so much more, though. Here's what I've learned to do when I grieve. Number one. I need time to grieve. I need time to grieve. That's why I took Tuesday off. That's why I haven't been fully engaged this week for, in my own life. I, I need time to grieve. Grief is a process. It is, it is not an event. It's a process. It is not an event. And you know, universally, you can go to almost any society on the planet, and even in our history, um, in Western civilization, we, you will find very detailed, very elaborate traditions and customs associated with grief. And, and there are universal things. There, there typically is a dress code. And, and the wearing of black is very common. It's not true in every culture, but it's true in many cultures, cultures you wouldn't expect. Wearing black is very common. Other colors sometimes are involved, red in some Asian cultures and, and white in some South Asian cultures. So, but there are colors involved, and, and, and the colors tell a story. Um, and it marked the stages of grief that we tend to go through when it's severe. Um, in the United Kingdom, in the 19th century, most of our customs concerning grief come from the United Kingdom and in Catholicism. Uh, we have... Uh, recognition in our history of period of heavy grief 
a period of half grief and a period of light grief. And you actually wore different clothes to indicate what kind of grief you were experiencing that time. Black, heavy grief. And there were different behaviors that were acceptable or not acceptable when you were in a time of mourning. And that the length of time was significant. You know, in the worst case scenario in, in uh, Orthodox communities in Eastern Europe, a widow who loses a husband would wear black the rest of her life. I think that's extreme. But it, it shows you that grief was understood to be part of a social fabric. Um, in uh, the time changes, depending on, on where you live, um, we almost have nothing in our culture. I'll say a word about that in a moment. But, but it, it went from your whole life to six years, to four years, to two to four years, to one to two years, to a year, to six months, to 30 days. It's changed. It's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, in the conservative Orthodox Jewish culture, uh, right after the funeral, which is when most of us in our society are considered to be done. But in Orthodox Judaism, when after the funeral, the first seven days are called the period of Shiva, and, it's, and the word means seven. And during those seven days, uh, the people who are grieving sit at home, and, um, and they'll sit on the floor, or they'll sit on a little stool, or they'll sit on a, on a box, and, and people are expected to come and visit them, and they will come and visit. Friends, family will come, and they'll cook. And that person who's grieving doesn't do any housework, doesn't cook, doesn't do anything. They just sit, and no one speaks to them unless the person who's grieving speaks to them first. And, and over their heart, they wear a, a, a shirt, or they wear a vest, or they'll wear a ceremonial piece of, of garment that is torn over the heart. It's called kriya, and it means torn or tear. And they'll wear it over the heart. And after that seven-day period, there's a 30-day period called shloshim. And during that 30-day period, the, the person's grieving. They continue to wear black. They don't engage in any social activity. They don't go to weddings. They don't do anything like that. They just completely stay out of that. Men don't, don't shave. They don't cut their hair. And that 30-day period is an extension of that period of mourning. All that to say this. What's, what's universal throughout most cultures and throughout most times in history is this. Everyone recognized and institutionalized the understanding that grief is a process, not an event, that it takes time to grieve, it takes time to assume normal responsibilities of daily life. In our society, we don't go there, do we? More and more in our culture, we have very little that we have expected in terms of grieving. And uh, we do things, but we don't have uh, expected 30-day periods or six-month periods or one-year periods and those kinds of things. We have a few things, but not many. Most of what we do is confined to the funeral. And, you know, we, we expect people to get over it quickly. We expect people just to move on with their life. What, you know, it's been two weeks, you know. And we start even when kids are little, you know, when you're little and you fall down and you bust your head and you're bleeding and some adult comes along and says, now, stop crying. 
Stop crying. I mean, really? My head's bleeding. It hurts. Listen to what God's Word said. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 4, it says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then it says, A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. In God's Word it says that there's a time of weeping and a time of mourning, and He calls it a season. A season is not a day. A season is not a week. A season is longer than that. In the Old Testament, when Moses died, the whole nation mourned for 30 days. Now, your season and my season may be different. And the differences may have to do with how close you are to someone or how great the hurt or the depth of the hurt that you experience. That affects how long you might grieve. You didn't know someone very well, you're not liable to grieve a great deal. But if someone's very close to you, you may grieve greatly. Let me tell you something else that affects it. When you're close to someone or you've experienced a great hurt, there's a, there is a time frame. And let me just tell you how that works. There's a calendar. And then on that calendar, every 12 months, you have certain things that you do as a family, don't you? Certain times you get together, certain traditions, things you do together as a family. There are seasons that come and go. Some of them are kind of crazy like we just had for winter, but there are seasons that come and go. And, and when you lose someone, you associate those family gatherings, you associate those, those seasons and things you used to do with that person, and that's why you can't do it in just two weeks. Because the calendar rolls around and suddenly it's somebody's birthday, like my grandfather's will be this Tuesday, and they're not there. And you can't pick up the phone and talk to them. Or something else comes up and you remember that was their favorite time of year. They like to do such and such at the gathering. They like to do this at this time of year. And they're not there. And that's why you have to allow time because grief, heavy grief, can take you by surprise for some people maybe three months, six months, eight months after the event or the loss. Don't hurry. What I've learned to do when I grieve is that I need time. Secondly, I need to pour out my heart to God. I need to pour out my heart to God. Grief is simply too powerful to ignore. I mean, unconsciously or consciously, sometimes we have a tendency to just put it away and we compartmentalize our heart and we say, you know, I don't have time to grieve and I'm going to just put that over here. You can't do that. Grief is too powerful to do that. I'm telling you, it's going to come out somewhere. You're going to be acting weird. You're going to do something strange. You're going to make silly mistakes. Uh, you're going to mistreat someone. You're going you're to misplace all this power and emotion into something else, and you're going to react. I mean, even this week with, with Gail, some of that spilled out on her, and I realized what I was doing. And so I have to pour out my heart to the Lord. This is the solution. Pour out your heart before the Lord. It's not only okay, it's part of the process, I believe, that God wants to take us through. My feelings, my questions, my complaints, my frustrations, whatever those things are, I need to pour those out before the Lord. 
The Bible calls that a lament. The biblical word for that is lament. Uh, Jesus uh, did it in Hebrews 5, 7. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. In the Psalms, the lament category is the largest single category of Psalms. About 40% of the 150 Psalms we have are laments. And a lament is typically me crying out to God. It's telling him my problem and expressing that fully with my heart and then expressing trust in him with this problem. An example of that is in Psalm 73, verse 21. It says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. You know what he's saying? He says, I was a little crazy. You understand crazy? I was out of my mind. And, um, and I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I was like a dumb animal. Now look at this. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. God doesn't abandon us. He's faithful even when we're crazy. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Number three, I've learned that I need God's truth and grace when unfinished business is amplifying my grief. Unfinished business. You know what unfinished business is? I sat down and wrote this definition out of unfinished business. You got to listen carefully. Here's unfinished business. The coulda, woulda, shoulda, beat yourself up things I should have said or done but can never do now because it's too late. I'll read it again. The coulda, woulda, shoulda, beat yourself up things I should have said or done but can never do now because it's too late. If I don't deal with the unfinished business in my life, I will prolong grief. It can become something destructive to the rest of my life. And all of us, when we lose someone close, we will find unfinished business. And when you do, you've got to deal with it with the Lord because the person is gone. Or the person who caused your hurt maybe is gone and you can't get to them. Let me give you a couple of examples of unfinished business. One of them is guilt. When someone passes who's close to you, you think of the things you didn't say, the things you didn't do, or maybe things you said you shouldn't have said, and you were going to get to it one day, you were going to do it one day, and you never did it, you never said it. And that guilt just comes. And you can't go to that person and tell them you're sorry. They're not there. And so you have to go before the Lord and you have to say, Oh God, I wish I could have done this. I, I should have done this. I think you were leading me to do this, whatever the case may be, and I didn't do it, or I hurt them, or the last words I said to them were bad things, or whatever the case may be. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, the Bible says, He who covers his sin will not prosper. If you just hang on to the unfinished business, it's going to hurt you. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Take your unfinished business to the Lord. If it's guilt, take it to the Lord. Let me give you another one. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Someone passes 
who hurt you. You know, people who were hurt as children by an adult, and they know that adult, and it may have been very painful, very difficult, and they've lived with this hurt their whole life, and they have never forgiven that person. They have been angry at that person. They were wounded by that person. They had every right to feel some of the things that they felt. And then that person dies. And they have never forgiven that person. And um, maybe the person asked and they didn't forgive them. I don't know the scenario, but, but unforgiveness has the power of unfinished business. And you have to forgive them. And, and, and in some cases, you may even be holding a grudge against God. And you have to release that. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And so we need to deal with our unfinished business. I need to go before the Lord and, and take these feelings of woulda, coulda, shoulda, and, and go before the Lord and deal with that. And sometimes I may even need to go to somebody who knows the word well and can sit down with me and help me sort out those, those woulda, coulda, shoulda things and how I need to take it to the Lord. And so God's grace, his truth can be very helpful in that. Number four. What I've learned to do when I grieve, I need to welcome the encouragers God gives me. I need to welcome the encouragers God gives me. Four years ago, my birth father was dying, and I went down to see him. And a complicated relationship. We had, he had left when I was six, seven years old. I did not know where he was, did not see him for over 20 years. And... Uh, ultimately tracked him down in my late 20s. I found him, and we began to forge a relationship over the next 20 years. And I would see him occasionally, and we would talk occasionally, and we would exchange letters occasionally, and the relationship was changing, and it was, it was changing. It was never going to be what a little kid would want with their dad, but it was, it was becoming a relationship. We forged a relationship. And now he was dying, and... Um, and he uh, became unconscious. And I had traveled from Arkansas down to South Texas on the coast where he lived and um, visited with him. I had talked to him on the phone, but when I got there, he was not talking anymore. I couldn't communicate. And I stayed as long as I could. I stayed for several days. I stayed as long as I could, but I, I reached a point where I couldn't stay any longer. And so I asked uh, some of the other family members to leave the room, and, and I leaned over, and I talked to him. And I said what I wanted to say to him. And, and um, when I was through, I, um, I leaned over, and I kissed him on the forehead, and I said, Dad, you can go now. You can go now. And I left, and I got in my car, and I began driving, and I got about two hours I was in Houston sitting in traffic bumper to bumper traffic on that afternoon and I get a phone call two hours after I left and he's passed on he's died and I was not prepared for the wave of grief that hit me at that moment it was so great that I could not see the road to drive the tears 
flowed and flowed, and I would drive a little bit and pull over and drive a little bit and pull over. It's a seven-hour trip. took me forever to get home. I thank God for my wife. I thank God for family who called me and talked to me. I had one brother in particular who called me that evening when I was on the road. And, uh, in fact, I texted him yesterday, and I just said, I thank God for you because you called me then. And uh, he said, I remember that night and, um, and what God did. And, and I needed those people. I needed my wife. I needed those that called me. I needed that brother. I want you to see the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. He says, he writes this, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. God does it. God comforts the downcast. But how did he do it? Comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see that? God comforts the downcast, but how did he do it? He sent Titus. He sent a, he sent a man. He sent a person, and God used that person. And it's normal to want time alone, but you need the people that God is sending to you. You need your Bible study group. You need your church. You need your friends. You need the people that God sends to you. And, um, and God's going to use them. Grief can be healed more rapidly in a spirit-filled community. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, And let us consider, that means think about how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not stir each other up to a rage, but to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. And so receive those that God sends to you. They may not know what to say. They may even say the wrong thing. But God has sent them and received them as though they have been sent. My dream is that one day every Bible study group at Wynn Baptist Church would be a safe place for people who are hurting. My dream is that one day every person who's part of Wynn Baptist Church would set their heart to encourage every other person in Wynn Baptist Church, that we would be that community. And then number five, I need the relief and healing. I need the relief and healing found in the life he has called me to live. You know, one of the mistaken ideas that people have about grief is, uh, I'll get there, I just need to get my life back to normal. And, and soon enough, I'll be able to get my life back to normal. Normal is gone. When something like that happens, when there's that kind of loss or that kind of hurt, normal is gone. If you lose your hand, you lose an eye, there's no going back to normal. It's a whole new life that's ahead of you. So what you want to do is discover the new normal. And how do you do that? Well, you need to remember some of the things we talked about, that it takes time. Um, you know, when I was a little boy, um, I had a Candyland game. I was like five, six years old, and this girl down the street, she wanted that game. And I liked the girl. And so she begged me for that game. She begged me for that game. She wanted that so badly. Sometimes my wife reminds me of that girl. I was so sweet on her. And so I gave her the Candyland game. She took it home. She was so happy. And I came back. My mom said, uh, where's your Candyland game? I said, I gave it to the girl. She said, what? What? We didn't have a lot, single mom. 
You gave away your Canaanite? Yeah, Mom, I did. And I felt bad. I realized she wasn't happy with that, so I did something wrong. And I never got that Candyland game back. I had to live life without the Candyland game. Okay? And it took time, but the time did something. And so I got another game here today. This is the game of life. Okay? Life. And, um, and you know, when you lose someone or something hurts you, it becomes part of your present. But your life is not just about the present, is it? In your life, you have a past, you have a present, and you have a future, okay? And what happens with time, I said you need time to grieve, I need time to grieve, is that part of that healing process is that time has a way of turning down the intensity of the grief and the frequency of the grief, and also has a way of putting some distance between me and my, my present hurt. And so what happens is that my my hurt becomes eventually part of my past. And it becomes there. It doesn't mean that something doesn't hit me on one day, five years later, I hear a song, I see something, I smell something, I think of that person, and I may weep again. But for the most part, it's no longer part of my present. Now, if I'm not handling my grief well, if I am got unfinished business, guess what? It stays with me all the time. I got guilt, it stays with me. Unforgiveness, it stays with me. If I don't pour my heart out to the Lord, if I've just sort of pushed it back and acted like it didn't bother me, it stays with me. And it doesn't go anywhere. So the process of growth I want to go through is I want God to come near. I want him to heal my broken heart. And I want, I want this thing to ultimately become part of my past. Um, the goal then, the next step is not only to go through these things we've talked about today, but, but our goal is to discover ultimately the next thing that God has for me. The next step that God has for me. He's changing me. He's growing me through these things that you experience and that I experience. A good illustration of this, of showing that God's not finished with you. You may be grieving and you've got to allow that time. But God is not finished with you. He still has things for you to do. Um, the story of Saul and Samuel is a complicated one. Samuel was a prophet. Saul was an insecure guy, didn't think he was worthy of very much. And God led Samuel to Saul, and, and Samuel anointed Saul to be king. And king was like, you know, all shucks. He didn't feel worthy of it. And he was small in his own eyes. And he was humble. But that changed. The longer he was king, he became proud. He became self-sufficient. When God said to do something, he did his own thing. First Samuel 15, God sends Samuel to Saul and says, because of what you have done, because you're not listening to me, because you're not humble anymore and you're not small in your own eyes, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. You're going to lose everything. You are not going to be the dynasty that I had in mind when I made you king. And Samuel does what he's supposed to do, and he leaves Saul. And the Bible says at the end of chapter 15 that he never sees Saul again. And Samuel is grieving. This was a dream. This was so exciting. This was going to be God ruling on earth through a, through a king. And that dream had died. Now, I want you to listen. God gives him time. And then in 1 Samuel 61, God says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? 
You see that? How long will you mourn for Saul? There's a moment at which Samuel became stuck in the past, constantly making the past his present. How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, he's not going to be the guy. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. God had a new plan. God was not finished with Samuel. There was a new future. There were things to do. Samuel had a ministry to carry out, people whose lives were going to be affected, people whose lives were going to be changed because God still had life for Samuel. And in that ministry to others, there is part of the healing of God. In that ministry to others, we've already seen that when God comforts me, he enables me to comfort others with the comfort that I receive from God. And as you re-engage, as you enter back into the present, as you begin to live today, and you do the things that God has for you today, there is a healing that only comes at that moment in your journey of healing from grief. In Proverbs 11, verse 25, the Bible says, The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters others will also be watered himself. You see that? As you minister to others, God says, there's a refreshing that you give to others. I'm going to refresh you. I'm going to do something for you because you are following me. Here's the bottom line. Grief is not weakness, but it is God's way of surviving and growing through my worst hurts and losses. Surviving and growing. This morning, if you're a person that is grieving or hurting because of loss or hurt that has happened in your life, you've experienced a loss through death, and someone was ripped away from you, maybe your heart right now is like that Jewish symbol, Kriya, of the torn garment over the heart. And maybe that's where you are. Or you would say, oh God, my business has failed. I don't have what I need for my family. I need work. I'm out of work. My marriage, maybe you would say, oh God, my marriage is in trouble. I, I have experienced divorce, and oh God, I'm, I'm grieving over this. Or maybe it's these things, Lord, I always thought would happen, these things I wanted to happen, I would... I would have a spouse, I would get married, I would have a baby, and this hasn't happened. You know, in the next few moments, we're going to have a time of response. The pastors and I are going to be here as we are here every Sunday. We are here to pray for you. Why? Why would we come week after week and carry grief and just assume nobody cares? We care. This church cares, and we will pray for you. We ask God to open up your heart that you can sense that he is near, sense that he comes to heal. We'll pray for you. Maybe there's someone that you need to pray with here 
You just need to saddle up next to them during the response time. Just put your arm around them and say, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. You know, if you're not a Christian, I don't know. We say this a lot at funerals, but I don't know how someone who doesn't know Christ gets through the kind of grief that is normal to the human experience. Except we do it the wrong way. We, we try to handle it ourselves. And, and if you haven't lost someone like that, if you haven't had that kind of hurt or loss, that day is coming. That day will come. And, and you need to prepare for that. You know the best way to prepare for the loss of a loved one is to know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven yourself. And, and do you know that if you died today, that you would go to heaven? And if not, you need to settle that. Settle that question. If I died today, would I go to heaven? We can settle that right now. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. We're about to have this time of response. And if you need to receive Christ, if you want to know that you would go to heaven when you die, it's not just a, a, a simple, it is simple, but it's not something we take lightly. And if you mean this with all your heart, if you're willing to give your life, all you know of yourself, to all you know of God, you need to know that he, Jesus died for you on the cross. He died for your sins that would send you to hell. He died so that you could experience his presence in your life, his Holy Spirit, and he died so that you could change and become a new man or a new woman or a new boy or a new girl. And a prayer for salvation would go something like this. You can make it your own. Oh God, I realize today that if I died right now, I wouldn't go to heaven. And I have not known you and I have rejected you and I have run from you. And Lord, I have sinned and I feel that sin and I realize now that I need a Savior. And so God, I'm ready to stop running. I'm ready to turn from my life without you and I'm ready to put my trust in Christ. And so Lord, I come to you now and I surrender everything. And I'm trusting you, Jesus, and your sacrifice for me to wash away my sin. Lord, would you come in and fill my life, take possession of my life. I receive you. Would you receive me? I trust myself to you. Rescue me. Thank you for hearing my cry. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I want to encourage you that if you prayed to receive Christ, would you share that with someone? I encourage you to share it during this time of response. One of the best ways to do that is to come down and share it with one of these pastors. Let us pray with you. If you still have questions, ask those questions. But then share with the church. I trusted Christ today. I took my stand. I'm not living for me anymore. I'm living for him. As God has spoken to you, brother, sister, new brother, sister, as God has spoken to you, how will you respond?